just going to introduce our speaker. Uh, James Kraskovich is a friend of mine. He is a, a, a PhD student uh, in the Old Testament in the Department of Near and Eastern, Middle Eastern Languages here at the university. And um, I first met James when I was, before I was retired, I was teaching a course on the book of Genesis. And uh, he wanted to write a, a, an essay on this verse, and I've never forgotten it. And uh, knowing James to be a careful student of the Bible and also uh, someone who knows and loves the Lord, I wanted and asked him to lead us off in our Advent series. I'll bring you the mic, James, so you don't have to yell, okay? I appreciate that. Okay. As we begin this season of Advent, I think that it is fitting for us to, con to consider the Proto-Evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel found in the Bible. In order for us to properly appreciate the beauty of this first glimpse of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, we need to understand the bleak context in which it was proclaimed. And we need to appreciate to whom God made this gospel proclamation. Unless we see the darkness, uh, we cannot appreciate how brightly the light of the gospel shines. So we will consider the following three points in order. First, uh, the temptation and the fall. Second, the identity of the serpent. And third, the content of the Proto-Evangelium, uh, first proclamation of the gospel. First, let's look at the nature of the serpent's temptation and the fall. The serpent went to the woman and asked if God had really told them that they were forbidden from eating any fruit in the garden. Take this in for a moment uh, and envision what type of imaginary world the serpent is presupposing to exist in his question. He's envisioning a world where God created man with a need for food and emotions, but then deprives man of the food that he needs all right let's do it uh, so the, the in his question uh, the serpent is presupposing a world where god made man with a need for food and the capacity for emotions but then denies man access to food in order to trigger negative emotions this is a god who's cruel uh, he enjoys frustrating and exasperating people he creates needs and emotions only to deprive those needs and emotions. In the serpent's presupposed world, God is to be judged as evil. Now, Eve isn't immediately taken in by this fantasy world, and she responds in verses two and three as follows. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the uh, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Interestingly, Eve's description of the prohibition doesn't quite line up with what God told Adam. God had not forbidden them from touching the fruit. Uh, now, we don't know whether she herself was embellishing God's words or whether Adam had embellished them in an attempt to keep her from uh, eating the fruit, maybe he thought, well, if I tell her not to even touch it, then she's even further removed from the fruit. Uh, well, our narrative doesn't clearly lay the blame in either party for this addition, but what the attentive reader should notice is the discrepancy between what God said just a few verses earlier in chapter 2 and what Eve says, and this discrepancy should be troublesome. 
the authors of scripture have a very negative view of people who feel they should supplement God's words. In Deuteronomy, Moses forbid anyone from adding to the law. John, in the book of Revelation, threatens curses upon anyone who adds to the book that he wrote. And the author of Proverbs makes a universal statement. In chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, he writes, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words. Otherwise, he will rebuke you and you will be found a liar. It may be a bit too much to say that Eve's expanded version of the prohibition foreshadows the fall, but at the very least, it creates a foreboding atmosphere of what's about to happen, because what she's saying isn't what she should have been saying. Ultimately, our story doesn't clarify this point or show the potential dangers of adding to God's words. Other stories do that. Instead, something worse takes place. Uh, the serpent responds to Eve in verses 3 and 4, and he says, uh, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we see the serpent outright contradicting God. The consequence, uh, sorry, contradicting, contradicting God on the result of uh, eating on the contradicting God on the consequences and of eating the fruit. Instead of death, the consequence would be sharing an attribute of God. Not only did he previously suggest that God was evil and cruel in his question, but now he adds to that presupposition the notion that God's rules exist to keep you from genuine good in the world. If only you disobey, then you can be like God. By contradicting God, the serpent set himself up as being more trustworthy than God. But not only did he set himself up as being above God, he also invited Eve into this charade. He wants her to stand in judgment against God. He put Eve in a place where she had to make an assessment on God's character. For Eve to have responded rightly to this temptation, she would have had to have asserted that God's goodness is above being questioned and that the serpent, by default, must be lying to her. But sadly, Eve did not respond rightly. Instead, she gave into the temptation to stand over God in judgment and concluded that God is an untrustworthy liar who is keeping the true good in life from her. And having taken the throne of judgment, she then assessed the fruit by her own standards. And what does verse 6 say? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She judged the tree by a combination of her own standards and those suggested to her by the serpent. God's standards were not at all part of her consideration. So she ate. Now we need to pause here for a moment and ask what the phrase knowing good and evil means. Ultimately, God himself agrees in verse 22 that they had become like God in knowing good and evil. So while the serpent lied about Adam and Eve not dying if they ate, he certainly told some level of truth when he said that they would become like God. But what does this expression mean? Now, if we look in the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, we'll see that the word for, or the Hebrew word for knowledge isn't only about knowing facts. It's also about being able to discern things. We could easily translate the name of this tree as a tree of discerning 
good and evil. But what would it mean to have God have named the tree, the tree of discerning good and evil? If we pay close attention to our narrative, and we, we see that Adam and Eve have to make an assessment as to whether they will adopt God's moral system or whether they will take the serpent's advice and decide for themselves whether eating from this tree is good or evil. It is at this tree that they discern whether eating the fruit is good or evil. And by making this decision, they also decide whether they will adopt God's moral framework or whether they'll patch together their own. If we understand the tree is of the knowledge of good and evil as being the tree discerning good and evil, where man has to decide whether he will determine good and evil for himself, or whether he will adopt God's framework about good and evil, we have an understanding that fits perfectly with the rest of scripture. A major problem presented repeatedly throughout the Bible is that people do what is right and good in their own eyes, contrary to what God declares to be right and good. For example, in the book of Judges, we repeatedly encounter the phrase that everyone in Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. And if we look at the events that were taking place right before these statements, we see them making idols, raping, murdering, pillaging, and other atrocities. Take that in for a moment. The author of Judges didn't condemn these people for doing what they thought was evil. He condemned them for doing what they thought was good. I think that the name of the tree indicated the type of decision that needed to be made whenever someone stood before it. Would they adopt God's framework on good and evil, or would they think they knew better than God and decide for themselves? Returning to our story, when Eve took of that fruit and ate and gave some to Adam who was with her, both of them committed themselves to becoming judges who determined their own standards. In a sense, they became like God. God, using his complete knowledge of the facts and um, knowledge of all possible realities, makes judgments on what is good and evil. His judgments, because of his omniscience, can never be wrong, and so are authoritative. Adam and Eve similarly used their knowledge of the facts and possible realities and made a judgment on what was good and evil. Their judgment, however, was based on partial and erroneous information. And the possibility they envisioned that would take place if they ate didn't come to pass. So their judgments on good and evil were terribly mistaken. And we do the same thing today. Whenever we take our limited knowledge, which cannot help but include things we call facts, but actually are not, and then we concoct our own moral systems and judge ourselves, the people around us, and God by them. And in doing so, we can easily look at some of the things God has said and done, judge them by our standards, and conclude that he is a moral monster that we can stand in judgment of. And then we can go the road of either trying to deny his existence because we dislike him so much, or maybe we accept we can't get rid of him, but we'll tolerate him. In addition to being terribly mistaken when we follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve by concocting our own moral systems, we also have the problem of authority. God's standards were authoritative for Adam and Eve. It didn't matter that Adam and Eve thought that they were doing something good. It didn't matter that they had a framework where their actions made good sense to them. 
their moral framework ran face first into, the, into God's authoritative wall of what is good and evil. He declared it, that's what it is. Their opinions didn't matter. It mattered so little to God that they thought that they were doing something good, that as he dished out punishments, he didn't even mention that they thought that they were doing something good. And this is a warning to all of us. If we set aside God's moral framework and concoct our own and then try to live good lives, we, God will have no respect for the good things we do that don't align with what he declares to be good. In a sense, we all daily stand before a figurative tree, and in every decision we make, we are choosing to either follow God's standards or live by our own. And I doubt that many of us need Satan present or a serpent present to tempt us to follow our own standards. If you're anything like me, you give in to that temptation far too often. And just as Adam and Eve's single attempt at doing what they thought was good earned them death, so too have we earned ourselves the same penalty countless times over for all the good things we've done that didn't line up with God's standards. And that's not even mentioning the things we've done that we knew were evil when we did them. In short, the context of the first proclamation of the gospel is the bleak context of the fall where the serpent convinced man to abandon God's ways and devise for himself his own standards, which resulted in him turning his back on God. Next, we need to consider the recipient of this gospel proclamation. Adam and Eve only received the good news as indirect recipients, since God was not speaking to them when he proclaimed the good news that the child of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. The direct recipient of the God's words was the serpent, Now, since in the book of Revelation, uh, so sorry, now since John in the book of Revelation referred to Satan as that ancient serpent, and Jesus declared that Satan had been a liar from the beginning, uh, we know that the serpent in the garden was really the devil. And I think the Israelites reading Genesis would have easily caught on to the fact that a snake was not the real deceiver. They would either have thought of the snake as being possessed by some spirit which was the belief throughout the ancient world, or they would have thought of the, uh, the, snake, the snake as being a spirit in the form of a serpent, just as the Egyptians depict their gods as being the shapes of animals. So since we recognize that the curse in Genesis 3, 14 to 15 is spoken to Satan, we can understand God is using a form of poetic justice here. Since Satan used a snake to deceive Adam and Eve, God cursed him in a way that made him permanently similar to a snake. Since snakes travel low on the ground, God cursed Satan to be kicked out of heaven to travel around the earth. And Jesus confirmed that Satan was removed from heaven and that he saw him fall like lightning. In the, and in the book of Revelation, John says that Satan was banished from heaven and spends his days on earth. God further cursed Satan to spend his days eating dust. While we could understand this to mean that Satan will be defeated in the same sense that uh, you think of the victor rubbing his enemy's face into the dust, I don't think that's what's going on here. Consider these two quotes from God's curses. Uh, in verse 14, God said to Satan, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And in verse 19, God said to Adam, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
It strikes me as too much of a coincidence that God would both tell Satan that he would spend his days eating dust and describe Adam as being dust without God intending there to be some sort of relationship between these things. Also, the image of Satan eating people continues beyond Genesis. In Revelation 12, Satan is depicted as wanting to devour the child of the woman. In 1 Peter, Peter tells his readers that Satan roams around like a lion looking for people to devour. What Peter means by his description isn't that Satan actually takes on a form of the lion and he might eat you when you walk in an alley. But rather, Peter uses the picture of a predator eating someone as a word picture for the tempting work of the devil. Similarly, Revelation's depiction of Satan trying to eat Jesus is not literal. The story of Jesus in the wilderness with Satan would have been very different if Satan had been trying to bite him. What the gospel writers describe as temptations, Peter and John depict at attempts at devouring. I think we should similarly understand the word picture of Satan eating dust and God describing Adam as being dust as an indication that Satan will continue tempting mankind to death and destruction. By cursing, sorry, by uh, God cursing Satan to spend his days see, uh, seeking after human death, he sets Satan up as humanity's enemy that needed to be defeated if humanity is to escape death. And very interestingly, the book of Hebrews says that Satan has the power of death and implies that Satan's, Satan needs to be destroyed if death is to be defeated. In a sense, Satan's power can be understood to hold sway over everyone who continues to live by Satan's advice to determine their own standards by which they can judge God and the world. And everyone who continues under his own system of self-made rules continues on in justifying the same condemnation of death that Adam and Eve received. But thankfully, God's curse upon Satan doesn't end here. We still have one final verse to consider. This brings us to our third point, the first proclamation of the gospel. We've seen that the context of this proclamation is the fall of man, where humanity trusted Satan and turned their backs on God and became self-appointed determiners of good and evil, earning a sentence of death in doing so. And we've seen that our ancient enemy, Satan, has been seeking our death and damnation ever since that day, and that he continues to hold power over mankind. So knowing the bleak context and understanding the foul enemy, we can begin to have a fuller appreciation of the beauty of verse 15, which reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is dense with meaning. And we will now consider each part in turn. First, God said that he would put enmity between the woman and the serpent, which shouldn't surprise any of us. The serpent was hardly a friend to the woman when he advised her to go down the path of death and damnation. And we shouldn't expect the woman to want to be friends with the serpent either. So we're not surprised by the enmity there. But how should we understand the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent? Who exactly are the offspring of the serpent? Unsurprisingly, the Bible nowhere else mentions the offspring of the serpent. Instead, we read about Jesus referring to a group of people as the offspring of Satan. Consider this conversation from the Gospel of John. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, 
If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Do you not understand? Sorry, why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you, I'm sorry, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. In this conversation, we can see that Jesus understood those who opposed God's ways and purposes as being the offspring of Satan. And these people were quite clearly at odds with Jesus throughout his ministry. There's undeniable enmity between them and Jesus. And as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the same enmity would be felt by everyone who followed Jesus. Ultimately, ultimately, this enmity is unavoidable. So long as one party adopts one moral framework and the other adopts God's moral framework, the two will view each other as immoral and doing evil things, and enmity can't be avoided. So the offspring of the serpent are those who adopt Satan's approach to God's ways, namely putting them aside and making up their own. And enmity is the inevitable result of this abandonment. That then leads us to ask, who are the offspring of the woman? And are they those who, sorry, are they those who follow God's ways? Should everyone who is a believer in God and follows his ways be thought of as the offspring of the woman? That would certainly be a reasonable way to understand this expression when we compare it to the offspring of the serpent. However, there are problems with understanding the offspring of the woman in this way. And there's a long history of another understanding that has been around since long before Jesus walked the earth. First, the problems. Uh, the woman, Eve, at this point in the narrative is known for her disobedience towards God, not her obedience towards God. And nowhere in the Bible is Eve held up as an example to be followed. If her fame is based on her disobedience, then her metaphorical children should be like her in her disobedience. And if they are like her in disobedience, then how are they any different from the offspring of the serpent? However, since Eve was a human who was blessed to be fruitful and multiply, her offspring don't have to be understood in a metaphorical way. They could, the offspring could be understood in a purely literal way. And I think the narrative requires that we understand God to be speaking about a physical offspring here, because the metaphorical interpretation of the offspring requires them to be just as disobedient as Eve was. The second problem with the metaphorical interpretation is the grammar of the Hebrew text, which is accurately translated in our ESV as he will bruise your head. This uh, doesn't understand the offspring of Eve as being a group of people that are similar to her, like the offspring of the serpent understood, understands everyone who is like the serpent to be the offspring of the serpent. 
Instead, the Hebrew grammar requires a single male descendant. Uh, further evidence is found in the Septuagint, uh, the earliest Greek translation of the Pentateuch, which was made hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And it very clearly perceives the offspring of the woman as a single male descendant. So neither the Hebrew grammar, nor the flow of the narrative, nor the, nor the earliest available translation permit us to understand this metaphorical interpretation. And since this single descendant wounds the serpent's head, he can't be understood as being under the serpent's power. The narrative requires a male descendant who succeeds where Adam and Eve failed. If he didn't succeed, he'd be under Satan's power and once again uh, would go the way of Adam and Eve. So we are presented with someone who strikes a fatal head wound on the serpent in exchange for a painful but not fatal wound on his heel. He defeats serpent, sorry, he defeats Satan. But what is it about this victory that means good news for humanity? Is the good news really just that some human will get vengeance on behalf of humanity while humanity suffers for their sins? That would hardly be good news, mediocre news at best. In this scenario, Satan still won the war, even though he lost the final battle. No, good news requires something much better than us merely knowing that our enemy will end up being defeated. If we remember back to Hebrews, where we saw that Satan held the power of death over mankind, in the context of our story, that power is the power of his deception that leads people to abandon God and his ways and go their own way. Uh, if we have, understand his power connected to his deception, then we can understand that his defeat must also involve the breaking of this power. But God does not, in this proclamation to Satan, explain the way that the descendant of the woman will break his power. Instead, we as the readers are left with a narrative that continues on beyond, beyond chapter 3, and the knowledge that God has proclaimed that there will be a descendant who crushes his head. And as such, the text invites us to search for this male descendant as we keep reading. And as we continue reading, we see that Abraham is chosen to be a vessel through whom blessing comes to the nations. But Abraham is not the one God spoke of. For God tells Abraham that he will have an heir through whom all the nations will receive blessing. Then Abraham had a son named Isaac through God's miraculous working, but Isaac was not the one either. And as the book of Genesis comes to a close, we see that Judah is selected as a line from whom a king will come that all the nations will worship. And as we read on, we read about David coming from that line of Judah and about a covenant where God promised David that one of his children would have an eternal king. Then we move on to the Psalms and we see an idealized Davidic king who is called David's son and is also called God. Uh, and as we move on to the prophets, we see a prediction in Isaiah about a child from the line of David who is called mighty God. And in the latter half of the book of Isaiah, we read about a servant who dies to save his people from their sins and to whom the nations go to learn of his ways. Then when we move to the New Testament, we encounter Jesus who does not fall for Satan's temptations who brought salvation through sacrifice, and who calls on his people to abandon their sinful ways and instead follow his teachings. And we read about how Jesus gave his Holy Spirit to his people to empower them to resist the deceptions of the devil and to live boldly in obedience to God. The beauty of Genesis 3.15 isn't merely that Satan will be defeated, although that does imply that his power will be broken, but that this verse points beyond itself 
to a chain of progressively increasing details about how the offspring of the woman will bring salvation to mankind and defeat the devil's power of death. For the Israelites living in the Old Testament, the narrative broke into their daily lives as the descendants of David were walking amongst them, and any one of them could have ended up to being the Messiah. And similarly for us, the narrative invites us to be ready for, in our daily lives, the return of the offspring of the woman, keeping our guard up against the devil who roams around looking to tempt us to go astray. Now, I don't know all of you, and in the event that we have some guests here who uh, have not turned to Christ in order to be saved from uh, death and damnation, I'd like to be very clear on this point. You do not need to remain condemned, nor do you need to continue in a futile attempt at figuring out good and evil for yourself. Jesus, the offspring of the woman, offers you forgiveness for the things you've done and provides you with a way of life that is pleasing to God. If you turn to him and give up on the vain hope that you will be good enough on your own, you will be forgiven and delivered from the power of Satan. And as for you, my Christian brothers and sisters, you have been freed from condemnation and freed from the power of the devil. So live out your freedom by living for God, what he has authoritatively declared to be good in the midst of the world that is at odds with God's values. And as the book of James says, to be friends with the world is to be enemies of God. Don't give in to Satan's temptation to be friends with the world. Instead, show them the way of truth and love, despite the cost it will have in this day and age of moral relativism.